0: Good morning. It is uh, really good to be together with you this morning as we sit under the preaching of God's word together. Kevin alluded to this, but this past week uh, I was afforded the opportunity to go and spend time with the church planting network that we are a part of, Treasuring Christ Together Network, hosted our. Annual Pastors and Wives Retreat, such a life-giving retreat. And so I'm thankful for our partnership as a church with this network. I'm thankful for the opportunities to go, to be refreshed and encouraged. And yet, I'm sitting there singing with you this morning and just thinking, this is the dearest place on earth to me. And it's the dearest place on earth to me, not because of this building, Believe it or not. (laughs) It's the dearest place on earth to me because of you. Because of God's kindness when we gather together to meet with us. It's the dearest place on earth to me because as we seek to pursue him together, he's promised to meet with us. And so I pray that This would continue to grow to be a dear place for you. And that God would do far more than we could imagine or even ask in and through our times together. And so I'm glad to jump back into our study through the book of Exodus this morning. This morning we arrive at Exodus chapter 31. And Exodus chapter 31 may seem like a perplexing way To end the section on the instructions for the tabernacle. If you remember, beginning in Exodus 25, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to meet with the Lord himself. Beginning in Exodus 25, God speaks 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, it's God speaking. God lays out the blueprint for his plan for how he will dwell together with his people. And so if you're just thinking, what is Exodus all about? Exodus is all about God's intention to dwell with his people. He secures his people out of slavery. He does it in miraculous ways. But potentially the most miraculous thing in the book of Exodus is not what he does to get them out, but what he plans to do to dwell with them. And so the blueprint was given in these six chapters. We have the layout of the tabernacle. We have the furniture that's in the tabernacle. The Lord gives instructions for the garments of the high priest and for the priests. We have instructions for how the priest would be set apart, consecrated. We have the instructions on what sacrifices were to be made. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way, and I think this is a helpful way of saying it. For six chapters, we've been given the what and the why of the tabernacle. And here in Exodus 31, we're given the answers to the question, who and when. So thus far, atop of the mountain, the Lord has been giving the answers to the question of what the plan for dwelling with God's people and why. This is part of his covenant loyalty, his faithful promise keeping character. And here in Exodus 31, we're given the answers to the question of who, who will do this work and when shall it be done? And I wonder how those answers might be applicable to you and I, modern day. And that's what I've prayed that you would see this morning and be convinced of this morning as we walk through this chapter. And so before we get started, I'd like to pray just for a clear line of sight that we would be able to behold our God. And in beholding Him, we would fully surrender to Him. And so let's pray. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We come to you and I'm just, I'm reminded of what your word says and I want to remind us of what your word says. That before the foundation of the world, there was a love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And in the same way that Jesus would say to his Father, Father, Just as you have loved me, so you love them. God, I pray today that you would arrest our souls with the reality that we are loved by you, our heavenly Father. And I pray this service would just be an evidence, a reminder that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And so would you grip our hearts this morning with your love by allowing us to behold wonderful things in and through your word. Our prayer this morning is that we would see Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so help us Remove distractions and give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help our unbelief and work among us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. Use the little bit that I have to do much with it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. And Exodus chapter 31 really has two sections in the chapter. Because Exodus 31 has two sections in the chapter, so this sermon on Exodus 31 will have two points. Each of the sections will serve as the point. And really, those two sections fit under the sermon title What God requires, God provides. And, and I hope by the end of this sermon, you are convinced that that is such good news for you, that what God requires, he also graciously provides. And so let's consider point number one. Point number one, the craftsmanship God required, he provided in the workers. The craftsmanship that God required, he provided In the workers. We really see this in verses 1 through 11. You heard Liz read the first six verses. And at every turn thus far in the book of Exodus, God has graciously made known his ways by speaking with his people, and in particular, speaking with Moses. And that grace continues in this chapter as we read, very beginning, Exodus 31, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And so God, yet again, speaks his desires and his expectations to Moses. As I was rereading chapters 25 through 31 this week, the thought occurred to me, I wonder if at any point Moses ever began to feel a little bit overwhelmed. I mean, it's just Moses and the Lord atop of the mountain, the Lord speaking and the Lord talking about the elaborate detail that would go into the work of constructing a tabernacle. Moses' background wasn't in the construction business. Now, we can assume that because of his time in Egypt that he was familiar with construction, But we have no indication that he himself was capable of pulling off the detail and the quality of work that the Lord required, that the Lord expected. And yet, in what I assume would have been a moment of relief to Moses, God speaks a word of his provision. Look at verse two. See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Bezalel. What God is requiring in skill and craftsmanship, God will provide. And the language called by name points to this personal knowledge that the Lord had with this man. And he called him for what purpose? Keep reading. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in cutting of stones for settings. And in the carving of wood that he might work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And so you see, the Lord just didn't make clear his expectations. The Lord also made clear how he would provide. And Bezalel wasn't merely called by name, but he was also filled with the Spirit of God to be able to complete the task that was before him. And Moses writing this, inspired by the Spirit, he can't be any more clear. Bezalel was not chosen because of his experience. He was not chosen because of natural talents, though though I trust that the Lord used those things. No, he was set apart because the Spirit of God had gifted him for this work. God was the source of his skill. Verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. That phrase, the Spirit of God, has only been used twice up until now in the Bible. The first, we see the Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, moving over the surface of the unformed waters. And then in Genesis 41-38, as As Joseph is described by Pharaoh to be filled with the Spirit of God as he's interpreting dreams. And yet this is the very first time that the Lord says someone is filled with the Spirit. And I think this is so instructive. I pray it's so encouraging to us this morning. The first time that the Bible records someone being filled with the Spirit... The Lord saying someone was filled with the Spirit. It isn't a prophet. It isn't a priest. It isn't a king. It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It wasn't Moses. It was a handyman. It was a construction project manager. It was a foreman. I've just been praying this week, Lord, would you allow this truth to be an encouragement for all, for all who have a particular calling in life to serve others and to honor him through what the reformers would call our station of life. That no matter where the Lord has placed us, the Lord has given us skill in order to do the work that we are intended to do for the good of others and for the glory of the one who gave us the skill. One pastor noted that to be filled with the Spirit is to have an ability from God to do or to say what God wants done or said. To have an ability to do or to say what God wants done or said, and that ability is from God. And so Bezalel then is God's appointed instrument for turning these verbal instructions that the Lord has given Moses into concrete realities for the people. And just in great mercy and grace, do you see how the Lord filled him with the Spirit? He was filled in wisdom, He had insight into what he was to do. He was filled in understanding. He was able to comprehend the work that needed to be done. He was filled in knowledge. He was helped to know how to complete the task. And he was filled in craftsmanship, having the skill to do the work at hand. And yet look at verse 6. God didn't just equip one man for the job. He also gave Oholiab to be the leader alongside Bezalel. And so God in great mercy has set apart, filled one with the spirit. He's also equipped another to come alongside. And who is it that they're overseeing? Well, look at what verse 6 says. I myself have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan and the and in the hearts of all who are skillful I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. And so verse 6 tells us that there are those who have skill to make these items. How did they get the skill? It wasn't that the Lord went looking saying I need to find the skill and then I will put something in them. It was the Lord saying I have given them the skills. God is the source of the talents and the abilities and the skills. He's filled his people with his spirit to do the work for his glory and for the good of others. The attention to detail, the precision, and the quality of work required was beyond the ability of someone who just had a mere interest or maybe had some natural talent. No, this work required God's spirit to fill and to endow them with everything that was needed to complete the task. And you can read verses seven through 11. It's a summary of the last several chapters. What task? Well, to make the things that the Lord had commanded. A few observations from this first point. When the Lord commands for something to be done, He graciously grants the ability for us to obey those commands. When the Lord commands something to be done, He graciously grants the ability. To obey his commands. So that everything that God requires of his people in the Bible, he supplies for his people. I, like I, I wonder on the front end if you believe that this morning. I wonder if you look around and you think about your life and particularly your wife, your, not your wife, your life as a Christian. Like, I wonder if you think everything that God has called me to do, I believe he has equipped me to do it. I believe he's given me the resources to do it. Like, I don't think God is a mean God who is asking me to do something that I cannot do. I mean, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us, who's the us? Christians. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that God requires of you, Christian, He has supplied for you, Christian. Everything. And He supplies it through the provision of His Holy Spirit. So God requires His people to forgive. And guess what his spirit does? The spirit helps us to obey God's commands. The Bible requires Christians to love others. And guess what the spirit does? His spirit testifies to our hearts that the love that we have received, we're now free to love others with. That's not something that happens apart from his spirit. And yet in great grace, he has supplied what it is that he requires. God requires his people to be holy. Guess what his spirit is doing in you right now? Conforming you more and more into the image of the son, the one whom the spirit exalts day in and day out. Everything that you need, Christian, God has provided He's provided for you. The Spirit is conforming our wills to His will. The Spirit is giving us appetites and desires for the things that God loves. And, Christian brothers and sisters, this is meant to make our hearts sing. For what God requires is ultimate, His standard does not change. And were it not for this kind and merciful God, we would never uphold his standard. And yet, everything he expects and requires, he supplies. Christian, you have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within. And we read all throughout the book of Exodus, and we think, man, if I could just have been there and had that experience, and all the saints throughout the book of Exodus would look unto us and say, if I could just have the spirit of the living God dwelling with me. But perhaps this is most clearly seen when God requires perfect holiness of humanity. God requires perfect holiness of his people. And by perfect holiness, what I mean is that there's no record of sin that's ever been committed. And there is a ledger of perfect righteousness that has always been committed. And so perfect holiness, no sin, Pure righteousness, and what God provides, or or what God requires here, is found in the provision of God the Son. The beautiful triune work of God, everything that the Father requires, He provides in and through the Son and in and through His Spirit. After humanity plunged ourselves into a place of total inability to be perfectly holy as God is holy. Do you know what this God does who has every right to pour out his just wrath on people who have rightly earned and deserve his wrath for sinning against him? Do you know what he does? He condescends by leaving the glories of heaven and he comes to earth to submit himself to the point of obedience even to the point of death, death on a cross. Why? Why in the world would God send his son? Why would the son so condescend and seek to put himself under the law, perfectly obey the law, get to the end of his life and die as a sinful criminal? Why? He did it to make atonement, to give a covering for sin. He did it to erase all of the record of sin. And he did it to supply all of the righteousness that the Father requires. Sin removed. Righteousness applied. And all of that comes about through the perfect life of Jesus, through his death on a cross as a substitute for sin. And the Bible says that any and all who would turn from their sin and trust in the finished work of Jesus as your only hope, you can know the cleared record. And the pure righteousness. What Jesus accomplished can be yours. And you say, Justin, that sounds pretty good. Well, it gets better because this death, the death of Jesus did something that no other death had ever done before. It stripped death of its power. It stripped death of its power when Jesus rose from the dead. And that all now who turn from sin and believe and trust in him, the Bible says we too will rise and live with him forever. Friends, God is more holy than you and I can imagine in what he requires of us. And yet God is more gracious than we can imagine in what he has provided in Christ for us. That is good news. And so my senior adult, friend who's not a christian children this morning in here not yet christians students not yet christians those who think your life is pretty good and yet you are not trusting in christ not yet christian come to jesus find life in jesus I was so helped by the meditation for preparation this week. I we would just call you to read over that, to prepare your heart every week. And even thinking what, what that quote spelled out so helpfully, even the faith that's needed to turn from sin and to believe is something that he provides Friends, you show up owing nothing for your salvation. Resting fully in what he has provided. No one or nothing will provide for you as this God does. And so if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, come to Jesus. And the way you come to Jesus is not saying, okay, Jesus, I'll give you a little bit. No, you come saying, Jesus, I have ruined it all. And if I keep control of any, I will continue to ruin it all. And so I'm coming, turning from my sin and believing in you and you alone. But not only do we see this clearly in what God provides in and through his son, but God's people, all of God's people have been filled with the spirit and gifted for works of ministry. No matter your station of life. And so this morning, I pray just even from Exodus chapter 31, you would see the invitation and you would hear the welcome to join God in what he is doing. Do you view your season or station in life as the place that God has so providentially planted you? That you would work and serve for his purposes, for the good of others, and for his glory. Think about your family. Think about your church. Think about your friendships. Think about your vocation. They've all been orchestrated by the divine hand of God with the purpose that this would be your ministry. All Christians have been given abilities from God for the building up of his church. And so think, what are the things that by his grace I can do well that God might use to be an encouragement to others? Come to life. I've I've been praying, let's be a church that celebrates the diversity of gifts in the body in order to accomplish the work that he has set out. Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of, us, of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. When God saves, he gifts. And so if you belong to him, then you have been gifted by him. And you have been gifted so that you would leverage whatever bit of time you have left to do good to others and bring him glory. Like I wonder if in the mornings you wake and think, this is the controlling reality of my life today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it, use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who has been serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. There is a way for you to use the life that you have. However unimpressive and ordinary you may think it is, there's a way for you to use that life and leverage it so that you would bring glory to the one who sits over all man, I wonder what would happen to our struggles with contentment if we would awake thinking, controlling reality in my life today is that this station of life has been given to me by God so that I would do others' spiritual good and I would do good in how I serve and I would bring God honor and glory. So if you're an accountant, if you're an administrative assistant, if you're a nurse, if you're a manager, if you're a student, you may be tempted to think that somehow your work isn't as important as others. I just go back to Exodus 31, and I wonder if Bezalel ever thought that God would be speaking to Moses about his job. And yet it all matters. Don't underestimate how God is using the grace and the gifts that he's given you where you're at right now to bring him glory. God has you where you are with the gifts that you have for the accomplishment of his purposes. Friends, your station of life is not about you. It's about him. And when your station of life is mostly about him, you then begin to do a lot of good to others. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 really is the banner that flies over this whole first point. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Friends, work hard as unto the Lord. Wherever he has you, build others up and bring him glory. That's why the mission statement of this church begins with Covenant Life Church exists to display God's glory. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so if you this morning are not actively involved and you're not serving with your God-given gifts, I just want you to know people around you need you. It's not enough just to say I'm a part of this people, and there are a lot of people who use gifts, but I really don't have to. I'm not really needed. No, you are needed. 1 Corinthians 12, every part of the body has a role to play. And so what better way than to live this ransom life that you have? Your work matters. Your gifts matter. Your service matters. It matters because God has given it to you. And because he's given it to you, you are to steward it for his glory and for the good of others. And so talk to pastors, talk to other members about how you might be gifted and where you might be most able to encourage and build others up. Brings us to point number two. The distinctiveness of work that God required, he provided in Sabbath rest. The distinctiveness of work that God required, he provided in Sabbath rest. I already know one of the feedbacks I'm going to get on my sermon is that my points were a little long. But I really do think the craftsmanship he required, he provided. But it's not just the excellence that they were to work with, it was also the distinctive nature of how they were to work that God also provided. Listen and see if you can see how this point arises from verses 12 through 17. "'The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "'But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, "'saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, "'for this is a sign between me and you "'throughout your generations.'" That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does not work on it, that person, or whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone. Written by the finger of God. Again, it may seem odd that the last little bit of instruction that the Lord will give to Moses atop of the mountain is repeating something that he's already said. Keep the Sabbath. I think this is important for at least two reasons. One, though this work was given by God, it didn't negate or override obedience to other laws that God had given. I can imagine the temptation hearing that God has so set apart me for this job. I think what I would want to do is work all night and all day to try to get it done. And yet God doesn't give commands that cause you to violate other commands. But secondly, breaching the Sabbath would have undermined the significance of the tabernacle. We can understand how how easy it would have been. Okay, let's hurry up and get it done. But we learned something about God's perspective on the work that is to be done. It's not merely to be done. It's to be done in a way that testifies that we belong to him. There is a Christian distinctive to work. Go back in the Old Testament. There's this distinctive that these people were not like everybody else. They were different than the world. God thinks that it's important to work hard for six days and then to rest one day in trusting him. And so I just wonder this morning as we unpack and tease out some of this, are you exhausted this morning? Because for you, there really is no break from work. Or are you anxious from the demands of such a busied life? Are you resting? And what God has provided. God has given us Jesus. The son. The one who said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. I wonder this morning if you. Heed that. Do we know how to heed This is the fourth time in Exodus that the reader is instructed to observe the Sabbath. Not only is it the fourth time, but look again at verse 13. You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. The ESV reads, above all, observe my Sabbath. Why is this such a big deal? It's such a big deal because of the significance of the Sabbath. It's hard for us to overestimate the importance of the Sabbath for God's people in the Old Testament. Verse 13, it is to be a sign between the Lord and his people. It's to be a sign between God and future generations. And what's the sign testifying to? It's confessing that it's the Lord and not our work that makes us holy. The Sabbath is a sign that points to both something and someone. And so whenever God's people in the Old Testament kept the Sabbath, they were pointing in their rest to a God who required the Sabbath. No other culture in ancient Near East had a practice of worship like this. The Sabbath was pointing to this special covenantal relationship between God and his people. Their work was to be a reflection of him. Go back to creation. He rested. But it wasn't just pointing to something. It was pointing to God himself. And the spirit inspired Moses to make clear what the consequences were of not upholding this in verse 14. It was doubly crushing. It was death. And being cut off. Death and being cut off. Those are not identical punishments. There are only two violations that call for such punishment death and being cut off. The other one, sacrificing your children to the false God. Observing the Sabbath is one of the ways in which his people would pursue holiness. It was to be this perpetual teaching moment in the lives of God's people for future generations. And you think, okay, well, does that mean that I should be taking a particular day of the week off, doing nothing, counting my steps, not lifting a finger, not, well, no, I think, Paul's helpful here. Colossians chapter two, verses 16 and 17. Paul makes clear, like, no one is to judge you in regards to food or drink, respect to festivals or new moons or a Sabbath day. Why? Because those are, those are but a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Ah, ah, The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. Verse 15, this was a gracious gift from the Lord to bring rest and refreshment and renewal to his people. Oftentimes we we think, and I think even God's people throughout history would think, okay, Sabbath, Sabbath, what do I have to do? It's like, no, no, no. The point of the Sabbath is to stop thinking about what you have to do. The point of the Sabbath is to rest in him, to trust in him. God gave this sacred time from the demands of the world whereby he would meet his people. In verse 18, just to mark the permanence of all of his words, God gives his words on tablets of stone. And so a few observations about point two. People will know who belongs to the Lord based on their ability to trust and rest in the Lord. People will know who belongs to the Lord based on their ability to trust and rest in the Lord. That was true then, and that is true now. I'm so thankful that this back half of Exodus 31 is included because I think it's such a primer for us to think about our work and our vocation. I talk to so many people who think I want to work distinctively Christian in my field and they think only about the integrity that they are to work with and the excellence which they are to work with. And praise be to God, those two things commend Christ. It speaks of one beyond us when we work full of integrity, when no one's looking, and we work with excellence in the product that we're seeking, in the service we're seeking to give others. And yet I've seen over the years, people are willing to throw themselves unhealthily into those two distinctives whereby missing, I think, a clear distinctive that is a biblical pattern flowing from this idea of rest. Many are slow to consider the boundaries of their work. And working with boundaries is also a distinctive of how Christians ought to work. And so I wonder this morning, are you Christian in your ability to rest from work? And to not give so much of yourself that it's hurting other parts of your life. And I realize there's debate over the role of the Sabbath and the Christian's life. Micah preached on this uh, several months ago. And, And I don't believe that the New Testament upholds this command to keep the Sabbath the way it does the other nine commandments. Thus, I don't think that there is a literal requirement of the Sabbath for New Testament Christians. Why? Well, because of what Paul said in Galatians chapter two. Because the law was a shadow. Christ is the substance I think even of the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so Colossians 2 will keep us from observing the Sabbath like legalistically. And so while I don't think that you are required in order to be made right with God to take one out of seven days of rest, I do believe that our perpetual rest, our continual rest in the Lord must be a regular rhythm of what it means to belong to Christ. I also believe the pattern that we see if our aim is to be like our God, I think the pattern that we see at creation means that we will want to emulate him and we will want to rest from our labors. Not just we would want to, but we recognize that our limitations, we need to. We have to rest. We have to rest, not because if you don't take one day, count your steps, make sure you're, no, not that legalistic. We are to rest Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is a rest that Christians can know in the midst of their work. And there is good for Christians to rest from their work. And so in your rest, do you just sort of veg out from everything? Or do you find yourself doing what, God's people would do when they rested. It was a day of worship. It was spiritually life-giving. Not just physically life-renewing, but spiritually life-giving. J. Alec Motier says, The Sabbath is not an exercise in restriction, but in devotion. And so this morning, are you resting in the Lord? Do you take rhythms of rest regularly and allow your body, mind, and soul to feast on the Lord in order to be renewed? Just go ahead and tell you, you may think that binge watching six hours of TV is going to renew your body. That it's gonna give you the rest that you need. I just want you to know there is a better rest than even six hours of doing nothing but watching your favorite show. Run to the presence of the Lord. Rest in him. The heart of the Sabbath was a trust that God would provide. And so to be, able to, un, to, to be unable to not work is to say, I don't believe that God is going to provide. Or it's simply to say, I don't care about prior, prioritizing my life around God. The Sabbath wasn't given just to not work, it was given so that there would be a way to worship God in our rest. So worship through work that gives way to worship through rest. The point isn't, ah, did you break a sweat today? No, the point is, did you break a trust today? Are you living the kind of life that rests adequately? Do you trust that God is in control? Christian brothers and sisters, trust in him. Non-Christians, only in Christ, your true Sabbath, can you rest from your work. Namely, your work, uh, your need to be right with God. And the reward for resting in him is that we're made right with God. The reward for resting in him is that we are loved by God, we are helped by God, and we have peace with God. If you are not a Christian, I would plead with you, put your hope in God. And it's as difficult as it is to rest one out of seven days, just that kind of rhythm is difficult for us, it is far more difficult to find our rest in him. And so praise God for, for Christ who both provides what we lack to be right with God and who provides the rest required to be obedient to God. And praise God for the church who walks with us in life, ensuring that we are relying on his grace as people are using their gifts. And so let's spend our lives, whatever we have left, Covenant Life Church, in being poured out for his glory, no matter the station of life that we find ourselves this morning. And let's do that in a way that rests fully in him. Let's pray. Our holy God, your word makes clear the standard that's before us. And I pray that not a person in this room would leave despairing because of that standard. I pray that we would see our inability to keep your standard and I pray that we would then run and throw ourselves on the provision that you have made in Jesus Christ. And for those of us that are in Christ, I pray that we would live not to quench the work of your spirit, but that we would be guided and helped and comforted and led by him. And so in this moment of silence, make clear to us how we ought to respond. Don't let us walk away unchanged, we pray.